Parashat Vayishlach. I think I actually told you part of this story, but uh, it so fits what I want to talk about. I'm going to take a risk and tell it to you again. Um, we were uh, in Hebron, uh, in Miluim. Uh, this is about, oh boy, years ago, in the first Intifada. Um, on the one hand, you know, I know Hebron, I've been to Hebron, it's 15 minutes from my house, 20 minutes from my house. On the other hand, you know, to go there in an army unit is a whole different experience. And uh, things were very hot, there was a lot going on. And when you go to Miluim, you know, first you do three days, you do like sort of infantry maneuvers just to prepare for Miluim, you, you, you know, you're coming out of civilian life and you're not used to this, and that kind of gets you back in the headspace, and also for safety reasons, that everybody knows what they're doing, and we make sure people didn't forget, and they're in shape, and whatever. And then after that, the third day, while the soldiers are all doing things with the sergeants, all the officers go to where they're going to be doing their reserve duty, where we're going to be on the line, and they meet the officers and the sergeants from the previous million who are about to finish. It's their last day of the reserve duty, and it's your first. And you do what's called a chafifa. And the officers of the reserve duty that just is finishing their month, they take you, the officers that are starting their month, around. Here are the missions, here are the patrols, these are the tatsbiyot, these are the uh, over, you know, lookout points you have to be in. You need three men for this, you need six men for that. This is an eight-hour patrol, this is a six-hour patrol. Like, there are regulations. And you're writing all this stuff down and getting a sense and you're learning the coordinates and you're seeing, you know, what the code names are and what your codes are going to be and how the maps work and all this stuff. And we get to this one lookout, this one tatsbit, and there's something weird. Because we get up on this roof and it's overlooking this, uh, this big square in Hebron called Kikar Gros which is named after a boy, Aaron Gross, who was killed by terrorists many, many years ago, like 1980, something like that. And, um, and when I get up on the roof, usually, you know, this is in every middle in every reserve that you do in the territories in Yudavashamon. So there's always like a rooftop which sits over a strategic spot, and it's always over a place where Jews go, and it's always a place where Jews have gotten into trouble, and they've been stoned, or Molotov, or shot, or whatever it might be. And the army says, let's put some soldiers up there, and that'll keep things calm, they'll see if there's trouble brewing, whatever. And you get up, and you know, you, 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 it's, it's kind of the right of eminent, eminent domain, it's the same as like if you build a highway through somebody's property in America, you have the right, the state has the right to say, we need this property, we'll buy you out. So in this case, the Israeli security forces say, we need this for security, and therefore we're going to be sitting on your roof. And how the Israeli army deals with this, and how careful they are, that's a whole interesting discussion for another time. And usually you get up on the roof. And the Arab roofs are pretty standard. There's a flat roof. There's usually a low, like, stone wall around the thing. I get up on top of this roof, and right away you notice there's something weird. Because on the top of the stone sort of wall banister that surrounds the roof, there are like these tin, I don't know, aluminum corrugated sheets that are screwed into the, into the, um, into the tops of these walls, right? That kind of jut out over the rest of the roof. And it's weird, it's uncomfortable. Like, usually you go to the edge of the roof and you can lean on this thing, you can put your coffee there. You can't, you kind of can't lean there because there's this corrugated thing sticking out. And I didn't understand what this was doing there. And uh, so I asked one of the soldiers, like, what is that? He goes, oh, you'll see. 
said, you'll see. Okay, that sounds a little ominous, but all right. He didn't want to tell me, he's like smiling, whatever. Tup. So, you know, we finish the day. We get back to our, to our base where we're doing maneuvers, prepare the chaylein. The next morning we come up, we do the chafifah. We split guys into the different units, including this particular tzitzit, this particular lookout. You know, there's six soldiers. They have to rotate two on duty all the time, and whatever. The first day, I go up there because I'm curious about this jutting whatever. And I'm talking to the chaylein, and they don't know what it is either. Like, for some reason, the unit before us, they were having fun with us. They didn't want to tell us exactly what it was. So we're trying to guess, what is this? Like, did they put this here because they cook on it? Did they put this here because couldn't figure it out? About 1 o'clock, I happened to be up there. And I wouldn't call it a rock. I'd call it a block. Come sailing up in the air. Now, if you've done enough miluim, you're sensitive to this. You're in the middle of the you got, like, this radar on. Right? And I kind of noticed that I'm on. And see, it's coming down onto the roof. Right? So, you know, you're used to this. You've, you've had rocks thrown at you. You can look at it and see it's not going to hit you, it's going to hit you, whatever. And one of the guys kind of steps aside, and we kind of smile at each other, because this is par for the course. And one of the guys runs to the edge roof to see what's going on. Next thing, another rock comes over, then a bottle comes up. Next thing I know, there's like 20, 30 projectiles, and they're flying up onto the roof. And all of us immediately figured out what these corrugated pieces were. We hit the ground and rolled underneath them. And for the next 15 minutes... All this stuff is pouring onto the roof, okay? Now, I get up, and I go to the edge of the roof, and I see some of the people that are throwing this. They're children. It's like 7-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 11-year-olds. Why? Because they're coming home from school, and it's like part of the routine. And after a day or two, we realize this is happening every day. The, the school gets out about 1 o'clock. Kids are coming out. Now, so obviously we do, you know, so we called in the patrols. You can't, we actually had orders that we're not allowed to fire into civilians, right? We didn't yet have all the plastic gear. There were plastic bullets, but a plastic bullet can hurt somebody. If you, don't, if you use it wrong, it can kill somebody. And these are kids, and they're throwing rocks. You could debate whether that is the right order. You could debate whether it's a mistake, but those were the standing orders. So that's what we did. So you have to call another, you know, the, the patrols, and you have to tell them to come, and they have to try to catch them, and the whole thing's a game. And of course, um, you know, when you're in the Shtachim and you hear this, and you send the patrol, and as soon as the patrol gets anywhere near there, the kids start to whistle. And, and you hear all this whistling. A kid sees an army jeep, he starts whistling, another kid whistles, and everybody knows the jeep is coming and they all scatter. And then the jeep kind of hangs around for a while, and then it goes, and they all come back. And it's like a game. And there is a solution to this game, right? You can open fire on these kids, they stop throwing rocks, but then you'd have, God forbid, a whole bunch of dead children. Not really a bright idea. And certainly not what I'm interested in doing, not on my watch, like for a lot of reasons, obviously ethically and also practically. Like I don't want to end up in prison, it's a good reason. So we're not sure what to do. And this is every day. By the third day, this is becoming a problem. I mean, it's only a matter of time before somebody gets hit. And it's every day around the same time. So I'm driving away, I'm trying to figure what to do. Next day, the, the, the battalion commander comes and I asked to speak with him, and we had a bit of a meeting. And I said, I think I have an idea, because this is ridiculous. We have to catch some of these kids. Because if we don't catch these kids, this is gonna be going on all month. Never mind how dangerous, never mind, it's just, it's not a smart thing to do. So this uh, part of Hebron, kind of the, the houses, the school was up on a hill, right? And the other side of the hill went down into a vineyard, into a valley. It was like nature. 
So I said, why don't we drive out early in the morning? We'll walk up through the vineyards, through the valley. We'll sit at the top of the hill. We'll wait, we'll wait till everybody goes to work, everybody goes to school, right? We'll find ourselves a place to camp out, and then we'll wait. And at one o'clock, because the tatspit, the soldiers, they can see these kids. They can even see where they're coming from. They just couldn't do anything about it. And we'll, we'll communicate. And then the tatspit will tell us where they are. And we'll run down from the top. They won't expect it. We'll catch a few. It's a great idea. So the battalion commander, like, this is, by the way, the mistake of coming up with good ideas. Be careful with this. He says, great idea, Alecha. <laughs> like, okay, go, right? So you got to do it. All right, so the next day, instead of my normal patrol, we take a jeep, we go around the back. It ends up being about a seven or eight kilometer hike. In order to get there, when nobody's expecting us, we had to get there at like four in the morning before they wake up. Then we had to wait down in the valley for a few hours, freezing. Then we had to hike up the mountain and get to the top of the village and find a silent wall where like nobody would kind of like pay attention to us and just sit there. Not exactly a good idea, but fine. Sure enough, a quarter to one, you know, I wake up all the guys, whatever, and I say, okay, you know, and there's two jeep loads, there's six of us, and we get up, and uh, we start walking down the side towards the village, towards the area of the school. We figure we're going to wait around the corner, and we know where they come from now. All of a sudden, I get this call on the radio from the sergeant on top of the thing, right, which is masked men, right, Raupanim is a person whose face is masked. Now, these guys... These were usually hit squads, okay? They have, maybe you saw pictures of them, you can look it up if not. They wear these like, they look like uh, cloth bags over their head with eyelets and whatever, and they disguise themselves so you can't see them, you don't know who they are. And these are assassination squads, they usually have serious arms, they're killing people, these are serious, serious. Like it was against the rule for anyone, any Arab is not allowed to wear this stuff in public because you knew that they were terrorizing fellow Arabs and stuff like that. So this is a whole different level. So we start running, and the Tatspit sees them. And he says, they're one alley over from where you're running. Run down, now take a left, now take a right, right? And, and we're running down, kind of jogging down, really, because they don't know we're coming, right? And we're doing it quietly until we get. And I come around the corner, and I see this guy. Now, you have to understand, you're on the side of a mountain, side of a hill. And the, the, the levels are like, sort of like, you know, like a level and then a level below and a level below. And so all I can see down is like two levels further down, probably about 50 yards away. I see a guy's head and shoulders. He's masked. He's got a Palestinian flag in one hand. And it looks like a medieval mace. It's like this iron bar with a chain at the end with like a spiked steel. And he's waving this thing over his head. And this is a serious weapon. Like if he throws this at somebody and hits somebody, he could kill somebody. And, and he's a Raul Panim. Now the rules with Raul Panim is, you know, normally if you see a guy and he's doing something suspicious, you yell, stop, what if? And if he doesn't stop, you know, you have a right to approach him. If he doesn't stop, you can fire in the air. If that doesn't work, assuming that you think there's a risk, if that doesn't work, you know, you can fire towards his legs. Only if your life is at risk, then you can fire, shoot to kill, right? So if some guy's throwing rocks and you think it's dangerous, you could fire in the air. If he starts running, you could fire his feet if you think he's going to endanger somebody. But you can't shoot him to kill him. You have to let him go. Whether that's right or wrong, those are the rules at the time. But a guy like this who's an old panim, you're allowed to shoot to kill him. Because these guys are dangerous. They kill people, right? So all of a sudden I see this guy, and I take off at a run. I start running for this guy. He hears me, turns around, sees me, 
dumps the flag and the mace and takes off. Now I'm two levels above him, right? And he's like an Olympic runner. I mean, this guy's taking off. And I've got my gear on, whatever, and I'm running on him, right? But I'm two levels above him. And this is about two, three minutes. Meanwhile, the guys behind me, remember, we're in the reserves. Half of these guys haven't seen the color of their, you know, their socks in a while. So I suddenly realize I'm running alone. I don't have the radio with me, because the radio was on a guy behind there, back there somewhere. And I'm about, I don't know, I would say the distance between me and this guy is from here to the Aaron Carter's, but he's like two levels down. And I see he's about to duck into an arch. And I realize if he ducks in that arch, by the time I get down there, I mean, the whole thing's a maze, I'm going to lose him, right? So I cock my gun, and I scream, Wakif, you know, halt, I'm going to shoot. And I aim my gun at him. And I'm going to shoot at his legs, but I can't see his legs. Now, I'm legally allowed to do this. I don't want to do this. I'm allowed to do this. He turns around. He sees that I'm aiming the gun at him. And I guess he got it, that he's not making it to the arch. Throws up his hands. I managed to get down there, climb down, you know, jump down there. To this day, I can remember the feeling of relief that I experienced when I got down there, put my hand on him. I couldn't tell because he was hidden by the... This is a kid. I mean, he couldn't have been more than 10 years old. I had no idea. He had his face masked. He was running. It was distance. To this day, I thank God that I didn't shoot. I would have ended up in courts or who knows. Okay, now I've captured a guy who still is, you know, carrying a flag, which was illegal at the time, carrying a mace, Raul Panim, but he's a kid. So there were standing orders for this type of thing. You call up base, they send a vehicle, and the vehicle takes him to base, and then they find his parents. Now, they obviously don't put an 8- or a 10-year-old kid in prison, right? They don't put him on trial, but they find the parents. The parents have to pay a significant fine because their kid is doing these things. The idea was this is going to deter parents, you know, make sure their kids don't do this kind of stuff because they don't want to pay these kinds of fines. Okay. So the vehicle comes and, you know, takes this kid off to the base and they're going to find his parents. And I'm struggling with this because we put this kid in the Jeep and, you know, now he's got his mask off and he's a kid. I mean, he's like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years old. And it breaks your heart. And this kid looks terrified. He looks terrified, you know? And I used to keep candy in my pocket for things like this. So I took out some candy to give him some candy. Normally, you give a kid candy, he smiles, right? He took the candy, he didn't even smile. And they drive off. Now, I know the Israeli army. I'm not worried they're going to do something to him inappropriate. But still, you know, right? And all this stuff is going through your head. You can't blame the kid. But on the other hand, you have to take a stand, fine. We finished our, you know, our basically our mission was accomplished. We did it, so we were going to head back to base. We got back to the base about 15 minutes after the 20 minutes, maybe half an hour after they brought this kid in. And as I get there, there's a whole hamula from the village that come to the entrance to the gate to the base. Okay, and it wasn't like a proper big base; it was a mutzaf, right? And the kid is sitting in the jeep, still. There's a soldier standing next to him. Somebody had given him some chocolate bar or something. He's sitting in the back of the jeep. And the, 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 the delegation from the village shows up. And one of them is obviously his father. And I'm just watching this. This is not me. They have somebody who speaks Arabic whose job it is to talk to him. And I find out later that they're going to fine him 5,000 shekels, which for an Arab in, in Hebron is an enormous amount of money. 5,000 shekels because his kid was wearing a mask. 5,000 shekels because he was carrying a mace, right? And I think 2,000 shekels because he ran away from a soldier, I don't know. Now, 12,000 shekels back then was probably about $4,000. Now, 
And if they find us four thousand dollars, that's a serious fine. But you could manage it. But if you're in Chevron, this is like this is like two months' salary. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why this stuff started to dip in a big way. Today, there's no intifada. And at that moment, everything changes. I never saw anything like this. See, I thought that the reason this kid was so scared was because he was scared. He was caught. He was scared of the Israeli soldiers. Turns out he wasn't scared of us. His dad, now what would you do? They caught your kid. He's a freedom fighter in your eyes. I don't know. He defied the Israeli army. And they caught him. Must be t- You go over. You give him a hug. You put your hand on him. Like Nobody had an issue that the father should go over to the kid. Just, you know, we're going to hold him until you, you're going to give us your tudat your whatever, not tudat your identity paper. And then, you know, you'll have a court date and you'll be able to argue your case and whatever. He goes over to this kid. Eight, ten-year-old kid. I never saw anything like it. He gives him a backhand, knocks this kid in the Jeep up against the windshield, walks around, grabs the kid, and slams his head against the dashboard and begins to beat. I never saw somebody beat a child. You read about these things. You never saw this. And three of us run over to him. It took us a minute to get him off his kid. We had to call a medic. I mean, it was a whole... He was terrified. And this whole scenario for me is still in my head. You know? How do you deal with this? How do you, how do you confront? There's something in this recipe, in my opinion, that is evil. Now you could debate what that evil is. And if you would have asked me before this incident, I would say that if a person picks up a rock and throws it at another human being, I mean, who's the first person who did that? It seems Cain and Abel. You'd think that's evil. But then you discover, no, that's not evil. What's evil is to get a child to do it. That's evil. And then you discover, no, that's not evil. You know what's real evil? To take a child's head and slam it into a dashboard. And I'm looking at this story, thinking about this story, the whole rest of the middle of I couldn't get this out of my head. How do you, how do you, how do you fight that kind of a culture? What do you do with that? You know, we talk about sometimes why bad things happen to good people. I'm sorry, bad things happen to good people. And we talk about why evil people do bad things. We don't ever talk about why good people do bad things. Like, here's a kid. You can't look at an eight-year-old kid and think he's evil. You just can't. I can't. And you can't say he's evil. But you can absolutely say that holding up a bar with a mace and, and, and throwing it at another human being is evil. How does such a child, how does a good person become that evil? Where does that come from? Now, why do I bring up this whole story? Because that's what's sitting inside this parsha. This parsha has, as one of the stories at its core, the battle against pure evil. Let's think about this for a minute, okay? Yaakov has grown up in the house of Yitzchak, but he has a brother named Esav. Now, Yaakov represents what? What does Yaakov represent? Anybody? Give me a word. Hmm? Torah. Yaakov represents Torah. I'd like to believe that Torah is good. What does Esav represent? 
Okay, Gashmius, right? Materialism. Much more than materialism. Our issue with Amalek, who is the great-grandson of Esav, is not that they're too materialistic. What does Esav represent? What does he spawn? The Yetzirah, the, the, what do they call that inclination? The evil inclination? Esav seems to be bad. But he grew up as the child of Yitzchak and Rivka. Now, you can't say that Esav, I know the Midrashim talk about Esav and he wants to go to Avodah Zarah, but really, he's a baby. A baby can't be bad. So, that's a question we're not going to answer tonight. How does, a, how does a baby growing up in the house of Rivka and Yitzchak become so evil? And that's true for evil wherever you look at it. Any human being that becomes evil started out as good. It's, by the way, the antithesis of Catholic doctrine. Catholic doctrine believes that we're born with original sin, that the sin of Adam and Eve created evil, and therefore we're born from evil, so we have to baptize us when we're born, and we have to fight to get rid of the evil. Judaism says the opposite. Judaism says we're born good. Tov lo adam shalom nivra. We would have been better off not being created, because then we can do no wrong. We, we keep all the mitzvahs lotase. We, we haven't done anything wrong. We're ahead of the game. So how does that spawn evil? Okay, that's a separate question. But now how do you deal with that evil? So Yaakov basically leaves the house of Yitzchak, runs away from Esau, right? Steals the birthright, or gets Esau to sell it to him, tricks him out of the blessings. We talked about this last week. Your brother was cunning, right? Interesting. Esau is the Ish Sadeh. Remember this? He's the Ish Tzad, Ish Tzad, Ish Sadeh. He's the man of the field. We spoke about this a week or two ago. Who else lives in the field? Who else lives in the Sadeh? And remember? Who lives in the field? Nope. No, he's a para Adam, but he doesn't live in the field. Oh, maybe we didn't talk about this. Wow, look at that. Fehanachash. Hayarum. Mikol Chayat HaSadeh. That's where you find the Sadeh. The snake was more cunning than any other animal in the field. So the snake lives in the field and the snake represents cunning. The snake represents temptation. You see that. Pshat in the puzzle. Esav lives in the realm of the snake. So that means that Esav has to be cunning. Now I'm not defining cunning right now because that's not going to be our topic. Isn't it interesting that Yaakov comes and gets the blessing according to Yitzchak. Your brother came with cunning and took the bracha, so he gets the bracha. He out-cunninged you. Yaakov learns to be Esav. It's interesting, Rabbi Sachs has a whole article. Rabbi Sachs has a whole article and he says that on a certain level, if you want to look at it from a psychological level, I don't think this is pshat, but it's a beautiful idea. Yaakov grows up wanting to be Esav. He's born holding on to the heel of Esav. And, and, he, and he buys the Bechorah of Esav. Then he puts on Esav's clothes. He wants to be Esav. So he acquires the energy of Esav. But then he discovers, you know, you may want to be Esav, but you're not Esav. And Esav's going to pound you. And Esav says, I'm going to kill you. You know, when Yitzchak dies, there's one day that says Esav's now going to kill Yitzchak so that he can kill Yaakov. It's a rather bizarre way to do Kibbut Aveim, but okay. And then I'm going to kill Yaakov. So Rivka gets that this is dangerous. Even Yitzchak gets that this is dangerous. So what does Yaakov do? What does Yaakov do? 
He's confronted with the fact that Esav threatens him. So what does Yaakov do? He leaves. He runs away. Runs away to the house of Lavan. Right? Okay. Runs away to the house of Lavan. Lives in the house of Lavan 22 years. Not so simple there. Finally decides this is not working. This is getting dangerous. What does he do? What does he do? He, he, he doesn't leave. He runs away in the middle of the night. Lavan chases him. Whole story. Now he's finally getting back to Eretz Israel. Okay? And they tell him, right? Esav is coming, there are 400 men with him. There's an army coming. What should Yaakov do? He should run. That's what Yaakov does. He's the guy who runs. Only this time he doesn't run. It's fascinating. Why doesn't he run? doesn't run. He does three things. It's interesting. One of the most difficult psukim in the entire Torah. Right? Um... Banu Elachicha, the Malachim tell Yaakov, Banu Elachicha, Elisav, Vagam Olech, Likratcha, Varabamotishimo, your brother is coming towards you with 400 men. Right? Vayira Yaakov Mod Vayetzelo. Vayachatz et Ama Sherito. Betatzon, Betabakar, Vagmolin, the Shnei Machanot. Vayira Yaakov Mod. Yaakov is terrified. That's Pshat. He's afraid. That's a pretty obvious question. You know, I've been spending the whole year talking to you about, you know, how we can overcome fear. Fear is the unknown. Hashem is with us. Yaakov Avinu is afraid. That's unbelievable. Okay. Not only is he afraid, Vayetzelah. There are a lot of different ways to understand this. Most people translate this as some form of distress. Maybe he's distressed because he realizes he deserves to be punished. He tricked Esau. I would like to say that Vayetzer comes from Yetzirah. And we talked about this in the Bracha Vashar What's the difference between Bria and Yetzirah? We said Bria is creation ex nihilo. Bria is where um, uh, Hashem creates something from nothing. What's Yetzirah? Does anybody remember? Formation. Well, what does that mean? Something that's already created. Right. Hashem takes the pieces and puts them together. Hashem created us with balance that he put together all the different pieces in our body in such a balanced way. So maybe Yaakov is suddenly putting the pieces together. Yaakov is putting it all together. He's been by Lavan, he's now wealthy. Esau's coming his way, he's got an army, he figures out this is not good. You know? So what does he do? He strategizes, he splits up the camp into two parts. It's a strange reaction. You could say it's a smart reaction. Asa will go this way, those will be saved. It also means somebody's going to get killed. Okay. And then they meet. And what happens when they meet? Right? Look at Paraglam and Gimel, Pasuk Dalit. Excuse me, one second. Vayaratz Esav likrato, vayechabkehu. Esav runs to him and he hugs him. Vayipol al tzavara, vayishakehu, vayivku, and he falls on his neck and he kisses him and they cry. It doesn't say he cries, like it does when he meets Yosef. It says they cry. Now the Mefarshim are divided on this. Okay, you have your right wing cynics and your left wing liberals. 
The right-wing cynic says, look at the dots over the Vayichab Keyu. He's trying to bite his neck. Yaakov's neck turns to marble. Don't trust Asaph when he gives you a hug. What are the, what are the left-wing liberals say? And I'm not saying who's right or wrong. We're talking about people like the Sfarno, just to be clear. Right? I'm just using that euphemism as a parody. They say they made up. Certainly something went right here. Asaph has 400 men with him. He even offers Yaakov, Pshat and Apostol, to go with him. So, what happens here? How does Yaakov, afraid, and an army of 400 men turn into a hug? So there's an event that occurs in between. What's the event that occurs in between Yaakov's fear and Esav's showing up? Anybody remember? He has this battle. Yaakov is left alone. By the way, that's a very strange detail. If you're really a strategist and, you know, you've got one camp here and one camp there, why are you alone? Right? Yeah, I suppose you could say you're in the middle. That's not a smart place to be. But okay, who exactly is Yaakov fighting? If you look at these psukim, right? Listen to this psukim. Yaakov is left alone. And a man does battle with him until the dawn. Who is this man? And he sees that he can't overcome him. Who sees that who can't overcome who? Now we're going to find out. But why does the Pasuk paint this in such a blurry fashion so it's not clear who we're talking about? And he grabs and 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 his inner thigh, the sciatic nerve. And finally, the thigh, or whatever it is, of Yaakov, collapses as he battles with him. A lot of pronouns here. I've always felt when you look at this, it's like this, it's like the Torah is trying to create this image. You ever see like, you know, the movie where the woman grabs the gun and the, and the husband or the hero is fighting the robber or whatever, and they're over, and she's trying to, like, but she can't because the dust and who... So it's, like, not clear. Who's up? Who's down? There's this, there's this confusion. Who's ahead? Who's winning? Where am I? And whoever Yaakov's fighting realizes he's in trouble, so he plays dirty. And the sciatic nerve is the single most sensitive nerve in the human body. It's a nerve that runs basically from the groin... Okay, down towards the knee, through the thigh. And in fact, years ago, you know, if you study martial arts or self-defense, um, if you grab just inside the right spot and you dig your fingers into this nerve, it is extraordinarily painful. And it will absolutely collapse a person and leave him writhing in pain. And I only know this because, it's a longer story, but I was once part of a, a group that was trying to teach women how to defend themselves against rape. And the person who was sort of teaching us how to do this showed us how this works. It's unbelievable. And these girls, these co-eds would come from the University of Pittsburgh, and they came to this sort of martial arts class, and he trained them over six months so that they could take a 250-pound guy and just reach down, grab this, and they'd be done. So, and by the way, this fits also um, theologically, because this is... This is the nerve that comes from the groin, the center of our passion, of our desire. That's our greatest weak point. We could have a whole discussion about that. So, so Yaakov now is limping. 
Okay? Yaakov is in pain. And this relates to the issue of eating the Gidanashe, but that's also for another time. And, right, but, but, so who's losing? You would think Yaakov is losing, but apparently Yaakov is not losing. Yaakov is limping because he was winning. And whoever's fighting him realizes, Vayar kilo yacholo, he can't overcome him. So he says, Vayomer shalchini, ki Allah Send me, let me go, for the dawn has come. What movie does that remind you of? Come on. They got to get out because the dawn's coming, the light's coming. Vampires, right? Well, what, are we, what is this? This is a vampire movie. No. I'm not going to send you, I'm not going to let you go. I want a bracha. Could you imagine this? You're walking down the street, I don't know, pick the worst neighbor you could think of, I don't know, Southern Bronx. You're walking down the street, a guy jumps you, you struggle with him, right? He punches you in a place that's not nice to talk about. You're in agony, but you're sitting on top of him. And he says, okay, you win, let me go. And you say, no, give me a bracha. It's like a Kalbach moment. What does that even mean? So he says, oh, now they're having a little smooth. Like, oh, what's your name? I can do it. She says, Yvayomer Yaakov. My name is Yaakov. It's nice to meet you. I'm going to beat you, but it's nice to meet you. You will be called Israel. You have done battle or you have been princely, royal. You've overcome men and gods, whatever that means. But Yaakov isn't done. Now he's got the bracha. He's got a new name. He says, okay, what's your name? What's Yaakov thinking here? Oh, your name is Asaph? You know, i got a better name for you. Let's call you Saraya. Like, what is this about? He says, why do you ask my name? This is a strange discussion. And he blesses him there. And then whatever... It happens, happens. What is this all about? What is this dialogue? So there are a lot of different ways to understand this. I want to give you two ideas to think about. Because I think they relate to this topic. Right? You know, first of all, what does it mean that Gidana Shmecha? Leib Chasman, one of the Hasidic masters, had a phenomenal take on this. He said, you think that you're asking the Malach, whoever it is, but clearly representative of something, evil, Asab, whatever. You're asking him his name, and he says, Lama Zetishalishmi. So we usually think that means he's not giving you his name. Rebbe Chasm says, no, that's his name. The name of whoever this representative is, is why he asked my name. It's a strange name. Who named the guy, why he asked my name? And one way of understanding that is understanding who it is that Yaakov is doing battle. There are two basic possibilities that Chazal talk about. The one that speaks most to me is Rav Soloveitchik. Rav Soloveitchik says that Yaakov is actually doing battle with himself. Yaakov is alone because Yaakov is trying to figure out who he is. Yaakov has reached the point where he has to confront who he wants to be. He has to stop running. He has to do battle. There comes a point in life you know, you have to be wise enough to know when to walk away. There was an old Kenny Rogers song. Do you remember this song? You have to know when to walk away and know when to run, right? You also have to know when to stand. You have to, oh, that's depressing that you all know the key. It's okay. But you have to know when to make a stand, right? 
Yaakov, for other reasons, decided it's time to make a stand, to take a stand. I have worn the clothes of Esav. I have lived in the world of Lavan. I've come home to Eretz Israel. I'm ready to be who I'm meant to be. By the way, if you follow Rabbi Sachs's idea, I finally know that I'm not Esav. I'm meant to be me. And when you figure out who you're meant to be, and stop trying to be who everybody else wants you to be, that's when you become who you're meant to be. That's when you become Israel. That's when you overcome the challenges in your life. And isn't it interesting that at the end of this story, Esav and Yaakov hug, and they go their separate ways because Yaakov can finally let go of Esav. That's one way to look at it. There's another way to look at it, which is perhaps a more uh, sinister approach, which is, um, I guess you could base this on Roshun Bayachai. Roshun Bayachai in the Gemara says, Halacha Psukha, actually that's not true, it's in the Sifra, Sifri, in Balotcha, right? It says, Halacha Psukha Esav Soni is Yaakov. Right? Roshun Bayachai says, it's known, it's just a known fact that Esav hates Yaakov. Now, in order to understand the statement, like that's the equivalent of what the Jew in the shtetl felt. You know, the goyim hate us. That's what a Holocaust survivor says. The Germans, the Poles, they hate us. Can't trust them. It's a difficult question. On the one hand, I didn't grow up in Poland. I don't know what Polish anti-Semitism is. Anybody thinks there was no Polish anti-Semitism? But to think that all Poles were anti-Semitism, that doesn't make sense to me either. Especially because they're, I mean, I, I stood in the courtyard of a house and heard the story of a family that risked everything to save Jews. They were righteous Gentiles among the, the Poles, so that's a hard question. Who was it who said this? Rav Shem Bayechai. Who's Rav Shem Bayechai? Anybody know who Rav Shem Bayechai's Rebbe was? No. Who was Rav Shem Bayechai's Rebbe? Nope. Rabbi Akiva. Right? Ooh, uh. Rav Shem Bayechai, I apologize. Rav Shem Bayechai, we'll finish up. Rav Shumbayachai saw his Rebbe murdered. And not just murdered, he saw his, his, his flesh stripped from his body in Kisarian in an arena. So Rav Shumbayachai lived in a time he saw what Amalek did. And he said, you just have to accept this. This is what happens. Sukkah. And we shouldn't live with them, and we shouldn't be with them. This is the chlokas here between the Ramban and the Sfarno. The Sfarno takes Yaakov Avinu to task because he bows down to Esav, uh, uh, sorry, says that, that, that Yaakov Avinu hugs Esav because we can make a rapprochement with that world. Rav Shimon Bayuchai says, uh, sorry, the Ramban says, that Yaakov is taken to task because he bows down to Esav. Right? And I'm not going to do this, I was going to read the Ramban to you, but you can look it up yourself. The Churban Beza Mikdash says the Ramban completely happened because we, we fawned. We wanted to make alliances with the Romans. And the Svarno seems to imply the opposite. That those things happened because we didn't know how to make peace. So how do you find that balance? Right? So I want to suggest one idea. First of all, clearly this parsha is the parsha where we struggle with who we are. To, to find the evil in yourself and to fight it. And to take a stand against it and to do battle with it and to realize you can be better. And when you overcome that dark side of yourself, the things that bring you down, then you are Yisrael. Isn't it interesting? Y- Yaakov of all the forefathers doesn't lose his original name. Sometimes he's Yaakov, sometimes Yisrael. That's human. That's who the Jewish people are. Sometimes we make it, sometimes we don't. And I'll finish with this idea. There's an amazing Pasuk in Dvarim. Okay? It says, uh, You're not allowed to detest 
the Egyptian, right? Why are you not allowed to detest the Egyptian? Because you were a stranger in his land. That is an unbelievable puzzle. Really? They enslaved us. They threw our children into, into, in, in, into the Nile River. They built pyramids with us. And I'm not allowed to test them. Not only that, look, you can't detest or hate the Edomite. Who is the Edomite? That's Esav. You can't hate Amalek because he's your brother. And that's unbelievable. Soloveitchik says that every nation that rises up against the Jewish people and wants to destroy us simply because we're Jews, illogically, which was Esav, right, to some degree, that's Amalek. And you have to destroy Amalek. Timchad zechra Amalek. So what does it mean, Lot Tutaif, you're not allowed to hate him because he's your brother? So what's interesting, Rav Shumba Yechai says, Halacha psuka Esav sones Yaakov. Esav hates Yaakov. It never says Yaakov hates Esav. You will never find a person that says Yaakov has enmity towards Esav. That's unbelievable. Now depending on how you look at the story, that's even remarkable. Perhaps that's because to become the Jewish people, we had to learn that the way to do battle with evil is to, to detest the action, but not the person. We can fight evil, but we can't hate evil. And I think that's the answer to the original question. The way that we stop evil is thinking about what, what action evil is and figuring out how to stop the action. It's not by hating evil. Hatred doesn't get you anywhere. And so this Pasuk, at its deepest core, is about our figuring out sort of how we become better inside. Can you, can, you, can you stop that person throwing a rock without coming to detest him, to hate him, to be angry at him? That's exactly the struggle that Yaakov went through. Right? And, and if that is the struggle that Yaakov went through, then, and that is the point we become Israel, then I guess that we as human beings become who we're meant to be when we overcome those, emergen- the, 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 those emotions. When we succeed in battling evil without becoming filled with hate of evil. So that's a, a little bit of food for thought. There is a lot more to talk about on this parasha, but we'll stop here. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.